Welcome to the Spiritual Phoenix Podcast, rekindled a bi-weekly show about magic, spirituality, healing, and the unified theory of weirdness. I'm your host, Ross Cessna. Let's light it up. Right, Andrew Collins is a science and history writer who has been investigating the origins of human civilization since 1995. He is the co-discoverer of a massive cave complex beneath the Giza Plateau known as Collins Cave, the author of over a dozen books, including his most recent work with co-author Gregory Little, Origins of the Gods, Kesem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to the show. How are you doing Hi, today? Ross. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's it's an honor to have you here, honestly. Um, before we get into the questions about the book, I honestly want to ask you how you got involved in all of this and how you got started. Um, well, I, I mean, from my own point of view, I, I was always interested in the mysteries of life. I mean, you know, whether it be, you know, trying to hunt down ghosts or see UFOs or try astral projection or... Um, decipher dreams I mean you know I, I was doing this by the age of 10 basically um, and uh, you know I think it wasn't until I got to high school uh, that I started to realize that I was probably one of the only people interested in these things you know what I mean um, and that's the way it was but then when I left school um, I went to work I decided to try and get closer to the phenomena itself so I became a UFO investigator for the British UFO Research Association. Um, and within a couple of years, I was um, going all over the country investigating the, you know, the, the, the best high strangeness cases that were coming up, um, you know, in Scotland, Wales, in, you know, obviously in England where I live. Um, and obviously what that did was it gave me a perspective on UFOs, which um, I needed. I mean, obviously I'd read, you know, dozens of paper, you know, paperback books. Um, and of course, what they essentially say is that UFOs are nuts and bolts spacecraft. They come from another planet or another star system, um, that they got flesh and blood aliens in them and they're coming here to observe us or to make contact. And, you know, the government knows more than they are saying. And, you know, the, the usual stuff, basically. And this, this, was, this was going back to the 70s. Um, but as I was investigating all of these cases, I began to realize that something was wrong, um, that, you know, that this black and white impression that we're given of the UFO phenomena was not correct. And I'll tell you for why, because now most of the genuine cases involved people that had also had other types of experience as well. You know, like they'd had astral projection, they'd seen a ghost, they could feel presences when they went into old buildings, you know, that, that type of thing, it just accumulated. And I thought to myself, how is this possible that the genuine witnesses of UFOs have this connection with, with almost like a sort of deeper level of existence? I thought maybe they're just all liars and they're just, they're just fantasizing and making everything up. And the other thing which I, by the way, I, I don't think that was true, by the way, but that, you know, at first it made me think that is a possibility. Um, but then secondly, is that very often people would see these objects, whether big or small, and they would respond in some way to the witnesses. In other words, the witnesses would observe them 
connect with them and the objects would respond as if they were sentient in some way, as if they knew that the person was there, that there was an interaction going on. And obviously people would come away from these experiences with a, deeply affected by them. I mean, not in the same way that if you went, you know, to a distant continent and saw an animal that you'd never seen before, you know, and, and became excited. It was a different type of thing that there was a connection between us and this phenomena, which went beyond simply observing something you'd never seen before. And so, I mean, I started writing about this. I mean, I, I did, you know, articles suggesting that there was this psychic link to, to UFOs. Um, and, but then I started to broaden my heart horizon and go into to other areas of the paranormal and the so-called earth mysteries. And eventually, I'll be honest, I became incredibly disillusioned with the, with the, the UFO phenomenon because it wasn't coming up with any answers. I mean, this was before a lot of the ideas to do with disclosure, you know, started to emerge, but there was still nothing happening year, year in, year out. You know, you there were no answers, really. So I, I, I got very disillusioned and I, I just dropped the whole subject, basically. But then in 1982, everything changed when a book came out by uh, a guy called Paul Devereaux, uh, an Earth Mysteries researcher who was at the time the editor of the Lay Hunter magazine. He'd been doing a lot of scientific research and a, a study um, of the relationship between stone circles and other megalithic monuments, um, the geology of a, a local area, which generally was quite intense, involving things like um, fault lines, tectonic plates, um, certain types of minerals that could very easily produce electricity, such as uh, quartz and tourmaline. Um, and the, the fact that these very same locations would seem to be producing mysterious lights, you know, UFOs or UAPs as they're known today by many people, and that they seem to be historical as well. In other words, this wasn't something that was occurring since the Roswell crash in 1947, but that this had been going on for hundreds of years, and that these objects, um, you know, were recorded in folklore, they're associated with um, folklore characters like hobgoblins, you know, elves, fairies, seem to be their lanterns that they were holding and whatever, and that these lights were seen and reported, particularly in obviously more rural areas, you know, farms by farmers, farm workers. Um, but there were certain locations where they would frequent more than anything else. And often they coincided with the location of things like stone circles and other megalithic monuments. So you think, well, what is the relationship? Well, I mean, what Paul Devereux started to, to realise is that these lights, these objects had clearly been there, um, yeah, been appearing for many thousands of years and that this may well have inspired the people to put the stone circles there in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, they were observing something and perhaps even interacting with a phenomena that was present. And I mean, this blew my mind, really. I mean, um, and I forget how good his books were. I mean, they were Earthlights and the follow-up to it was Earthlights Revelations. And, but having said that, I mean, he wasn't the first person that came up with these ideas. In 1977, there was a book written by Michael Persinger who, and his colleague Ghislaine Lafreniere uh, called Space Time Transients and Other Unusual Phenomena, 
Now he was a, a neuroscientist, a Canadian neuroscientist, and he was the first one really to scientifically start linking certain locations with intense geology, with the appearance of mysterious phenomena, and the fact that certain individuals who came too close to that phenomena would experience electrostatic effects or electromagnetic um, anomalies and stuff like this. Um, this was in 1977, uh, although I wasn't aware of that book until many years later. But, you know, this, this is clearly where ufology was heading towards. But of course, what happens is it starts diverging that on one side, you've got this whole, you know, um, community based on the idea that we're dealing with nuts and bolts spacecraft coming down here. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether that's correct or not, we'll come on to shortly. And then obviously other, the more scientific side is saying, look, these objects really exist. There's no question about that, but they seem to be manifesting in accordance with certain locations, locations where the earth produces natural electric electricity through the release of so-called electrons within the rock, you know, which is caused by the distresses and strains of the earth, the same stresses and strains that cause things like earthquakes, for instance, um, and that this phenomena seems to be, and this is the other important thing that, that Paul Devereux realised, sentient in nature. In other words, it seemed to be alive. It seemed to have consciousness and it seemed to relate to the witnesses, which was something that I've, I'd, I'd realised myself in my own research. But of course, then you start saying, well, if that's the case, is this sentience real or is it purely the imagination of the people. In other words, they're seeing something into the phenomena that's not really there. And, you know, as the years went by, I tried to look at this, this subject. And the, 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 for me, the thing that changed everything was the fact that I investigated the first ever full-blown uh, abduction of a family in the UK, five people in a car that were going along, they saw an object, and that, that this, this oval blue light that came over them. And as they, you know, continued the journey, I mean, just as they went around the corner, the car headlights failed, the engine died, they couldn't hear the tires going over the, the ground anymore. And right in front of them was this luminous bank of green mist, uh, almost like an electric fog. And they went into it, felt very nauseous, everything just stopped. And then the next thing they know, they're three quarters of a mile further on in the same car, obviously. Um, oh, wow. and, um, and, and they get home from this very short journey that should have only taken 20 minutes and three hours are missing from their life. Wow. You know, and so, you know, they have a few weird dreams about being in bright rooms with these gnome-like creatures, you know, around them in the, the, the year or so that follow. But they didn't say anything for, for three years. And I investigated the case in 1977 and got involved hypnotists and you know the, you know, all under the um the umbrella of the british ufo research association flying saucer review which was the main magazine at the time and also the ufo investigators network and this hypnosis sessions showed that some kind of onboard you know ufo experience had taken place and you know in theory that was it you know the story was published in two parts and that was that but the, the problem is, is that I always wondered about this case because although it was very genuine, 
there's no question that, that it occurred. And it's no question that these people lost three hours of their life. And there's no question that of these people, you know, suddenly seeing a UFO, something affecting their heads and falling asleep in the car and then waking up three hours later. Because I know the road and there's no way a car would stop in that road and somebody would not get out and say, are you okay? There's just no way that that would occur. So they were missing for three hours. And at this played on my, I thought, well, if they were missing for three hours, what happened? Did they, were they genuinely taken aboard a UFO or what? And there was a, an aspect to it that puzzled me. That was the fact that, that in the back of the car, there were three children. Two of the children were asleep. The third child, who was the oldest, had his hands on the passenger in the driver's seat, you know, looking forward, and he, and he was all excited because they'd seen this, this UFO pass over. And yet when they came out with, you know, with this three-hour you know, missing time and obviously three-quarters of a mile further on, everybody's in exactly the same position. The, the, the child still has his hands on the... The, the, the two seats, a passenger in the driver's seat, the other two children are still curled up asleep. And you think to yourself, how is that possible? You know, mm -hmm. were, were the aliens, you know, trying to sort of show that nothing had happened by putting every, fitting everybody back in positions, <laughs> you know, and exactly, no, 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 the hand was further that way, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, and this was the other thought that started coming to, into my head, what if they lost that time in our reality instantaneously? In other words, they were actually taken out of normal space time. And whatever experience that they had was in another reality altogether, another time reality, a space-time reality. And, that, you know, in other words, that they jumped space and time. That's what happened. When they went into that luminous bank of green mist, they jumped. And... If that were the case, where did they go? You know, if they were taken outside of, of normal space time. And I started to work out that the only possible answer was that they, they must have existed during that time within a higher dimensional environment, an environment that wasn't simply made up of the three dimensions of space and one of time that, that we occupy, but one with a higher dimensional environment that once you exist within it, you cease to exist within our own three dimension, or certainly as far as anybody looking in are concerned. So in other words, they wouldn't be there. I mean, they, they simply wouldn't be there. And, and the fact that this is taking place more or less instantaneously, it's not taking place across a period of three hours. In other words, their journey is not three hours. It's just gone just like that. But because they're in a separate reality, they can experience whatever they want. They can see this, in whatever way they want, you know, you're aboard a spacecraft, yeah, you know, you're, you're talking to some kind of intelligence, which, by the way, I think was real, because John Day, the main witness, who I, I still know to this day, um, you know, was, was strongly believed that the intelligence that was involved with that continued to, you know, to connect with him in dreams, in thoughts and ideas thereafter. And I suspect, you know, I spoke to him, today he'd say the same thing that it's still there now he's still aware of its presence um so there's an intelligence involved so we're, we're not simply dealing with something that could less let's say be explained in scientific terms and then just forgotten there was clearly a connection 
with an intelligence involved. And if that's the case, this intelligence had to be of a higher dimensional level. In other words, it wasn't simply a flesh and blood, you know, extraterrestrial coming here from another star system. It was something else, something that's outside of our normal space time, but that under certain circumstances can interact with this world through either UFOs or through these, you know, these electronic fogs that seem to be associated with them. So that, that was it. And I mean, I worked this out as early as the, the, you know, the nineties and I wrote this up in various books, particularly a book called um, Alien Energy. Um, and then eventually in full in a book that came out in 2012 called, called um, Light Quest. Um, and so these, these ideas were, were, were there in the back. Now, obviously, as you probably know, and various your viewers know, I've got another career as well, and that's um, uncovering ancient mysteries, um, you know, writing about the origins of civilization. And at the back of my mind, it was always a case of, you know, I'd read books like um, Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken, you know, back in the 70s. And it's a great book. It challenges the way you think about the past, about whether there could have been any kind of, you know, alien intervention in the rise of civilization, you know, the, the, the our knowledge of technology, in, innovation, stuff like this. You know, and of course, the, the big question that he asked, and this got the most amount of uh, publicity was, you know, was God therefore an astronaut, basically? And the whole concept of ancient astronauts, the idea the aliens may have come down here in the past became a reality and you know obviously today we've got tv shows like ancient aliens that look into this which obviously I, I form a part of so you know my big question was to myself is you know were we helped along the way i mean and i didn't think that it was direct in the sense that physical aliens came down here and you know just guided us to build the great pyramid or stone age or whatever that didn't seem right to me. i thought that if there is a some kind of interaction it's on a much more subtle level you know in other words it could be through the mind through altered states of consciousness shamanism um, yes of course encountering this light phenomena and the way that it seems to affect us and gives us the creative abilities. Many people that have missing time experiences go on to be incredibly creative. You know, they become artists, they become musicians, poets, writers, um, you know, and, and create new technologies, you know, ideas in new technology. And so if that's the case today, then it must be the case that if this phenomenon has been around for many thousands of years, then similar ideas could have inspired us either directly or indirectly in the past. And if that's so, what were these intelligences? Well, I began to realize that we could be dealing with what we, I now call trans-dimensional intelligences um, that are around us all the time and have always been there, you know, across the last 2 million years, you know, of humanity and that have guided us with new in innovations and technology as we go along and you know in the new book uh, origins of the gods what i show in my half of the book i mean greg little does the first half and i did the second half is that i showcase a place called the kezem cave in israel 
And this is a remarkable place. It was only discovered in the year 2000 when they were building a new highway from uh, the Mediterranean coast across to the, um, the, wet, the Palestinian West Bank. And they were blasting their way through rock outcrops that, you know, to, to make the route. And they came across this cave and, you know, just scattered all over the place, which by the way, the, the cave was, was essentially destroyed during this process, was, you know, literally thousands of bones and artifacts and, you know, stone tools, et cetera, et cetera. And the archeologists were brought in from Tel Aviv University um, and they started to excavate, I think, initially in 2001, but anyway, eventually it went on to 2016, where they, they downed tools and have spent all the time since then analysing and trying to interpret the findings. And I was aware of this site because some really interesting things were coming out of it, but it wasn't until 2019 that I found, you know, I read, that they discovered the earliest evidence in the world there of shamanism. That I started to take a serious interest, particularly because what they discovered was this swan wing bone, you know, the, the wing bone of a swan, you know, this mighty bird, you know, um, that had been clearly been removed from the, the, uh, the, the, the bird. It had, the feathers had been purposely removed. It had been modified for use in cultic purposes. And at the end of its life, it had been placed in a, a, a location that is considered to be the Holy of Holies in that cave where other artifacts were found as well. It seemed to have a special purpose. So it was clearly something different. It was the only swan bone found in the, you know, the entire cave amongst thousands of other bones from you know, food that was just chucked away and whatever. It was the only but, you know, bone of a swan. And the, the important thing is, is that across the Eurasian continent, the swan is a avatar or a totem for shamans who want to travel from this world into the other world, you know, the land of the dead, to communicate with the supernatural forces or otherworldly beings that exist within them. And the, um, the, the, the archaeologists working on, you know, on this cave, particularly Ram Bakai, who uh, is a very forward-thinking uh, archaeologist there, were pretty certain that this swan wing bone was used in shamanism and, you know, for communication with otherworldly realms and intelligences. Now, how they would have seen those intelligences, we can only speculate, but what he suggested was that they were the ancestors of these people, that what I call the Kezem people, um, but also the spirits of the animals that would have been killed in the hunt. So in other words, there would have been this, this, this symbiotic relationship with the animals that would be killed, but not just in life, but also in death. So in other words, they would continue to have contact with the animals, even in death. So the spirits of these animals would be able to speak to them. I mean, if you want to sort of give a comparison, think of something like um, Raj, um, Raja, uh, uh, Kipling's um, you know, Jungle Book, you know, the, the idea of all the animals being able to talk to, to humans. Think of that, uh, Rajard Kipling, that's his correct name. Um, you know, think of that idea that you enter into this domain where the animals are able to speak to you. And so this becomes a very uh, basic means of communication from the other world 
into our world. Now, that's one side of the story, but at the same time that these people were writing the, the, you know, the book on how to do shamanism, they were also becoming the smartest people on the planet because they were uh, a whole number of firsts for humanity all occurred in, in the, the, the Kesem cave. I mean, for instance, they created the first canned food you know, they were able to preserve food, which was um, in the form of these legs of, of deer, which had this rich, nutritious marrow in the middle of it. And they would wrap them uh, immediately on being removed from the animal carcass. And they would then put them in their backpack and be able to have them as a snack for the next few months, you know, as they went off on their journeys. They created the first frozen food, essentially, although not in the, the style that we uh you know, see it by being able to use ash to preserve food across a, a, a very long period of time. They were the first people to use uh, fire in a sustained space in the same spot within a fire hearth over an incredibly long period of time. They were also the first people to create like production lines of stone tools known as blades. Uh, which up to that time, you know, were found here and there, but they created production lines of them. Um, they had their own, what the media described as a school of rock, um, which was essentially that pupils could come into the cave and there were certain locations where they would, they would sit and learn the trades of making certain types of stone tools. I mean, I mean, this doesn't sound like, you know, you know, technology of today but this these were big strides for humanity back then and this is as much as 400,000 years ago I mean the Kesem cave was um you know up and running from 400 to 200,000 years ago and the people that were there were not homo erectus who are the people that had been you know essentially all over the planet up to this time they were our own ancestors the, the teeth that have been found in the cave are exactly the same as modern human teeth. So these almost certainly are our own earliest ancestors doing this. So is it a coincidence, therefore, that they're writing the book on shamanism at the same time? I don't think it is. I think that what is happening is that this innovation in technology is coming to the shamans or anybody else that enters into altered states of consciousness and comes up with the, you know, these, these innovative ideas, you know, far more so than let's say, you know, their neighboring communities in, an, in another area that, that weren't doing the same. So you've got this, but then you might say, well, this is all very nice, but how does it link with UFOs or aliens or trans-dimensional beings? Well, the fact is that a short distance away from the Kesem cave visible just on the horizon, is a very important mountain called Mount Gerizim. And we know it's important from the Bible, from the book of Genesis and various other early books that talk about it being the terrestrial dwelling place of God. You know, the, the God that, that will become the God of the Israelites, the God of, um, you know, Moses, you know, Yahweh, basically. And it was said that he inhabited this one mountain, nowhere else, this one mountain and that the people that still live in that area today uh, called the, Sam the, the Samaritans who are who claim to be the the true descendants of the Israelites um, their books and commentaries talk about 
God manifesting on this mountain in his form as the Shekinah. Now, this means the presence of God, but it's generally interpreted as meaning God as he appears as a blinding light. So the Shekinah is a reference to strange light or light being seen on the mountain that's interpreted as the presence of God. In other words, oh, look, the light's there. Obviously, God's, God's you know, there today, so to speak. You know what I mean? And so I looked in, started looking into this. And I found that there is a, a, a historical tradition of mysterious lights associated with this location, um, you know, right the way through to the modern flying saucer era, you know, objects being seen in the area. But, you know, that wasn't enough for me. I, I needed to, I get to the Kesem cave to, you know, have further conversations with the archeologists working there. And I found out something really important at, at that time. And that was the fact that, the peoples of the Kesem cave and another nearby open air site called Jal Julia would go to Mount Gerizim to get a particular type of flint to make their tools. And this was despite the fact that there was, there was, you know, good quality flint local to them, which they could have used all the time. I mean, yes, they did use that other flint, but they decided to go to this mountain specifically to get the rock to make the stone tools. So why did, why were they going to this mountain? But the other important thing is that I went to the mountain, which is you know in the Palestinian West Bank, and I climbed it and spoke to uh, one of the highest ranking priests of the Samaritans, and you know obviously started asking him questions all about the mountain. But then finally I said to him, you know, I'll, you know we've we've heard about these reports of of strange lights and whatever. Do they still appear today? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what he said. I said, well, how are they interpreted? And he said, Malach, which is Arabic for angels. So what we would call UFOs or UAPs, UAPs today, are seen by this religious community as God's messengers coming down and manifesting on this mountain to this day. And I mean, you know, that was, yeah, that blew my head when, when I heard this. I mean, you know, I had an interpreter and a driver with me, uh, but I mean, as soon as he said the word Malak, I knew what he meant, basically, it means angels. And so can we dare to suggest that the people of the Kesem cave were aware of these lights, what we call UFOs today, as much as 400,000 years ago and that they were attracted to this mountain and saw it as having some kind of sentience. In other words, the presence of these lights and perhaps other unusual phenomena that may have been occurring was something that they were able to not just connect with, but to see as some kind of controlling force that was able to benefit them if they appeased it in some manner. And I, you know, we can only guess how they did that but also that the mountain had a special power and that if they took away the rocks, for instance, that power could be drawn back, made into tools or whatever else, and then used as a link to the mountain and the supernatural force, what we call an egregore today, um, that's associated with that particular location. And I think the answer is yes. And you know, if that's the case, then 
they were communicating and connecting, not just directly on a you know one-to-one, but probably through shamanic experiences and altered states of consciousness, connecting with this phenomena and linking with it through some kind of entanglement, quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is the idea that whole systems of particles can um, communicate with other with each other at any distance because particles become twinned, linked together, and no matter how far they, they get apart, they still retain this link. And if you think of whole systems of particles um, that exist in two separate places, you know, some could be in my, my head, some could be in your head, you know, the other, you know, they're corresponding pairs. And if those doing a particular dance in my head, those would be doing the same dance in your head. And that's something that we would call telepathy and could also be an explanation for stuff like mind over matter and possibly even precognition. And so because these objects for the most part, I think are what's known as plasma, which is the full state of matter, which comes into existence through the release of electricity in the earth, uh, out into the local uh, in environment of these, you know, these, these electrons, which, uh, you know, create these environments uh, to allow a process known as ionization to take place. This is where atoms quite literally are split apart, pulled apart, and the electrons, um, you know, become freed, freed up on, and when this happens is they get very excited and they release tiny packets or particles of light called photons. And as all this is happening, they create their, they generate their own magnetic fields, sorry, um, electromagnetic fields. And all of this then just suddenly bursts into life, like a, a light bulb being turned on and you have in front of you an object. Now these objects can be um, large, small, they can be multiple, they can split, they can remain for a microsecond or you know several minutes or possibly even longer. Um, and they fit the description of a great amount of UFOs seen. Not all, of course, but a many UFOs are objects of light. And you know, and 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 they're objects which seem to convey a sentience. I mean, plasma itself was realized to possess what appeared to be a sentience uh, as early as the 1960s with the work of theoretical physicist David Bowen, um, who came across from the States, spent a lot of time in the UK um, doing plasma physics, but also a lot of quantum work to do with entanglement and quantum entanglement that uh, he worked on. And what he came to believe is that plasma could be, um, uh, the the plasma could come some kind of what he described as a proto-intelligence that came up from some deeper level of existence existing outside of normal space-time and that it could inhabit plasma whilst it was manifested. He believed it came from somewhere he described as the as the implicate order. Um, but his colleague Basil Hiley referred to this same non-local medium, in other words, a medium that's outside of, of normal space-time, as the pre-space, I mean the realm of the pre-space, which I think is, is, a, is a much better term. And the other important thing is that 
various theoretical physicists today believe that plasma could harbor an extra dimension of space. So whereas we live in three dimensions of, of space, which are essentially dimensions of geometry for the most part, you know, dimension one is back and forth, dimension two is moving sideways as well, and dimension three is being able to move up and down, creating a three-dimensional environment in which we exist. Well, obviously, in addition to that, we have time, which for us only moves forward. But if plasma has an extra dimension of space, one that is very difficult for us to perceive as three-dimensional creatures, then time almost certainly would operate in a different way anyway. Um, and that's certainly been predicted uh, by a theoretical physicist that time would work differently in a higher dimensional environment. But the plasma therefore becomes a possible gateway, doorway or portal into a higher dimensional realm that coexists with us. And such a realm has been predicted in what's known as M-theory, which is a form of string theory, um, where it's predicted that our physical universe exists within something that uh, they refer to as the bulk. Now, the bulk is a multidimensional realm, essentially of four dimensions of space, just like plasma, but with an additional six dimensions that exist in a curled up form, what's known as compactified form, that essentially, you know, are so tiny, essentially, that they have very little effect upon the running of a, uh, an environment of four dimensions of space, but that they're there and have clearly have some purpose, which is uh, difficult to understand. But with the extra dimension of time, that makes 11 dimensions in all. And that is the theory of M-theory, that there are 11 dimensions and that there is a realm called the bulk and that within the bulk, our physical universe and others come into existence within that bulk and that, that this physical existence will be three dimensions of space and one of time. But the other of these physical universes that they refer to as brains, B-R-A-N-E, or brain worlds, could also exist in the bulk. And some of them, other brains, could touch our own. They could be so close. Or they could even overlay our own universe, perhaps temporarily come together and then move away. And so we would... we. So the bulk is with us. We are embedded within the bulk. We are embedded with an 11 dimensional realm. And I find that really intriguing for, for a whole number of, of reasons, but including the fact that an organization, an institute in Switzerland known as the Blue Brain Project, are trying to not just map human consciousness and the brain, but also to try and extract it and put it into you know, an AI, uh, artificial intelligence, environment but what they have done in mapping the brain is to determine that it works on anything up to 11 dimensions of geometry and if that's the case that's extraordinary because it means that our brains are actually hardwired to be able to acknowledge and experience 11 dimensions if we were aware of them 
And if that's the case, then, I mean, it's almost like a, a, a you know, a, a modern day smartphone handset, you know, that's wired for 5G networks, you know, phone networks, even though that's not here yet. Do you know what I mean? It, it's like our brains are ready to be able to interact with, with an 11 dimensional environment if we knew how to do it, which to me must strongly suggest that the extra dimensions in the bulk probably relate to consciousness in some way. You know, in other words, consciousness has a very vital and valuable role in the nature of a physical universe and it's the way that it comes into being. So with all of this, and I do believe that M theory has very, very vital, has very vital understanding of the mechanics of reality. Um, the best, I think, is that if that's the case, is it possible that in this higher dimensional environment that there are intelligences that exist, what we call transdimensional in intelligences that can coexist with us and can connect with us through plasma environments and possibly through entanglement um, during altered states of consciousness, you know, and possibly even dreams and in other ways as well? I think the answer is yes. I mean, we call these, these intelligences n-dimensional beings, the n standing for undefined number, which is what's used in, 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 in science in um, formulas where you know, the, the number is not known. And because we could be dealing with five dimensions, 11 dimensions, although some people have suggested there could even be 32 dimensions out there. So we don't know how many dimensions these, these beings exist on. But so we call them n-dimensional beings or just n-beings for, for short, basically. And they become a viable alternative to the idea of flesh and blood um, aliens out there, um, you know, affecting humanity. In fact, there is a possibility that they could be the true ancient aliens, basically. And that, you know, they have been having an impact on us you know, not just since the building of the Great Pyramid or Stonehenge or whatever, but since the beginning. And the, when I say the beginning, I mean, I, I talk generally about the last two million years, but really it all started happening about 1.75 million years ago, because it was at this time that we invented fire or, you know, the, the way of creating sustained fire. And we would start using them in caves. And of course, to sustain a fire, you'd, you'd have to put stuff on a fire, basically. And I think that eventually what would happen is that you would have started putting psychoactive or psychotropic plants on them by accident to start with. And people would get into a shifted state of consciousness, you know, sitting around the fire, not really realizing what was going on, but then very gradually across time, you'd realize that it only happened when certain types of plants were put on that fire. And of course, you would then fine tune it, refine it, and realize that you could enter into altered states using certain types of psychotropic plants, and possibly obviously, you know, mushrooms as well, but that's a different story. But, and the, what's so important about this is that the invention of fire coincides with us creating the first multifaceted stone tools 
um, hand axes known as the Acheulean hand axe, the, the earliest of which is 1.76 million years old and was found um, just to the west of Lake Takama in what is today Kenya, not far from the border with Ethiopia. And these are beautiful. In fact, I just happen to have one <laughs> that I can show you now. Um, this is an Acheulean hand axe. This, this, this is very, very similar to the one that was created 1.76 million years ago and found at Lake Takama. This one comes from South Africa uh, and it's probably about a million years old. It was probably created by um, Homo erectus. Um, I mean, they created them by, by the million. I mean, you know, they're, they're all over the planet and they were, once the design had been created, they continued to manufacture them down to about 200,000 years ago. Um, but the importance about them is that they are beautiful. They are multifaceted. Many of them look almost like crystals. And you wonder why we changed to manufacturing tools like this. Because before this time, all we did was got pebbles, just rocks and smashed them to make them a bit pointed, to use them in whatever fashion that we needed. There was no cohesion in design in what was known as the so-called Odawan industry, which was from about, if I remember right, from about 2.2 million years ago down to about 1.75 million years ago. All we were doing was just smashing rocks, basically. And then suddenly we start creating the most beautiful things. Why? And the fact that it coincides with us inventing fire, I think is no coincidence. So that was happening in Africa on the Rift Valley one of the most tectonically and intense geological places on earth. So is it possible that, you know, not only were we inventing psychoactive um, substances and the way they affect us at this time through the invention of fire, not only were we creating these beautiful stone tools, but was that possibly the first opportunity of higher contact with Transdimensional intelligences. I think the answer is probably yes. Wow, that that was uh, amazing. I would definitely have to say yes to that too. There's so many different things that you covered in there. Um, I think you covered most of the questions that I had for you, um, and everything that you said because that was beautiful. One thing that I do want to touch on. Um, how does Skinwalker Ranch tie into this? And, and what would you say about that? Yeah, I mean, during the writing of the book, um, I had the, uh, the opportunity to go to Skinwalker Ranch and spend a couple of days there. Um, and obviously, as we know, uh, it's probably the most well-known portal location in the world. It's got its own TV show. Uh, and, you know, I was able to meet various of the people involved with that. Um, who had lots of great stories. But in addition to that, I was able to speak to various workers there. I mean, people who didn't really have uh, any direct interest in UFOs or the paranormal, but who were themselves able to tell their own stories of seeing, you know, objects appear either high in the sky that would just manifest or very low level going over this, uh, what they call the Northern Mesa which is this mesa that rises up on the northern side of the ranch. And they would just come over these objects and just come over, you know. 
And I was able to start piecing together what was going on there. I mean, we know that you know, you get everything from these weird lights that appear there, strange entities appearing, these weird cryptids for everything from like direwolves to uh, what we call lycons, which is the correct term for a dog man or a bipedal dog headed uh, individual. Um, you know, obviously strange electromagnetic anomalies, uh, weird flashes, stuff like that. I mean, the stuff that, that we've seen on television and read in books, you know, about Skinwalker Ranch. But what's so interesting is that portal locations around the world have very similar ge geology. You know, they, they have a lot of tectonic plate activity deep underground. They have fault lines, which is, you know, where this, you get splits within the rock strata that have incredible pressure on them and shift to cause earthquakes. There are certain types of rock that, that sorry, minerals that generate electricity very easily. Most obviously quartz, but also tourmaline. Tourmaline is a very, very important uh, generator of electricity in a process that's known as piezoelectricity. And so you've got all of this, and very often these are found where mysterious lights, UFOs are seen on a regular basis, but also you'll find that ancient peoples have marked out these locations as sacred, and even as no man's land, where they'll build their sacred monuments just around them, basically, to almost focus their attention on them, Mount Gerizim being one example. So you now we've got Skinwalker Ranch. Well, sure enough, there is a fault line, runs right the way through, or well, certainly the, 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 the western part of the northern mesa, and there's every chance that it continues on underneath it. Um, the type of rock of that mesa is a type of sandstone full of quartz that powders really easily um, and creates like this dust that, that, that gets everywhere. You've got to wear, you know, scarves around, around your face so that it doesn't get, go, come in, go into your lungs. It's, it's quite horrible stuff, to be honest. But it's quartz, it's pure quartz. It creates the sand that's everywhere there. And you have here the environment for generating these, what they call it, electron bursts. And these electron bursts, which is a correct scientific term, create what's known as ionospheric environments. And within these, plasma can manifest very, very easily, as well as other types of electromagnetic anomaly. And that would obviously affect the individuals. It would affect electrical equipment, um, you know, such as smartphones and stuff like that. And you see on the television, you know, look at my phone, it's doing weird stuff. I mean, all of these would be the result of these ionospheric environments. And so basically, uh, Skinwalker Ranch is like a, a showcase site of what a portal location is like. And of course, there are many hundreds of them, perhaps even thousands around the globe. Many of them are mountains that have become like holy mountains, sacred mountains, Mount Mount Shasta, for instance, in California is probably a, a classic example. I give other examples in the book like Mount Athos in Greece, as well as Taishan Mountain in China, where I was in 2019. Uh, and I actually saw mysterious lights coming out of the summit of the mountain. And I photographed them, the pictures are in the book. But what was so interesting about that is just a few days after I was there, 
there was an earthquake that with its epicenter right at the base of that mountain. So there's no question that there was a relationship between the appearance of those lights and the fact that the earthquake showed that there was incredible pressure building up inside the, the tectonic forces, you know, rocks and strata with the, that actually you know, created the mounting in the first place. So, you know, this, this, this shows this relationship. So the other thing about portal locations, which in the 60s to, to, for UFO research, you know, ufology used to be referred to as window areas, that's the old term that was used for them, is that you will often find that there's folklore connected with these sites. You'll find that they were places of, you know, folklore characters like elves and hobgoblins and fairies. I mean, obviously we're talking about Europe for the most part here. But if you go to, let's say, North America, the, the Native American peoples will also talk about these specific locations. I mean, the reason why Skinwalker Ranch is called what it is, is because the local Ute uh, tribe um, believe that manifestations, supernatural manifestations that have occurred on that northern mesa for at least 150 years are the result of curses that were put upon their tribe by their rivals, the Navajo. And the reason why they put these curses on them, they believe, is because there was a lot of tribal wars between the, the two you know, First Nations in the 19th century, some of which involved early settlers, you know, the Mormons that were obviously in Utah. And, you know, some quite horrendous stuff happened during that time. And I think that, you know, the Ute believe that, you know, they almost like deserved, you know, that these curses being put upon them. And the reason why they believe the curses there is because they were seeing phenomena actually on this measure, which they call, by the way, the path of the skinwalker. And that path of the skinwalker corresponds, I would say, almost perfectly with the alignment, the trend of the actual fault line on hmm. that mesa. So, you know, th there is a science here today, you know, whereas most people, and I don't want to upset people because we'll come on to real UFOs in a second. I don't want to upset people, but, you know, we have a science going on here now. I mean, yes, it's in its infancy. Um, yes there's still a lot of speculation and ideas, but we're getting somewhere. And all of these ideas you will find in Origins of the Gods, which as I said, is co-written by my colleague, uh, Gregory L. Little, who's a top expert on Native American mythology and mound cultures. I mean, he produced, which is unquestionably the, 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 well, the only and the best mound encyclopedia of virtually every mound site in the whole of the United States, big thick thing, and he's revising it again. If you haven't got that, go out and get that as well. Uh, plus, he's written various books on the deeper side of the UFO phenomena as well, um, one of which has just been republished called People of the Web. Um, so he's very well respected as well. And, and we realised as early as the 2000s, the early 2000s, that we shared a very similar, similar interest. Um, you know, through people in the ufology subject that realized something else was going on. People like John Keel, for instance, Jacques Vallée, you know, the books that they, they, they would write, and even Brad Steiger, you know, books that I read as a, as a teenager and were different to the other books, you know, different to the books that were just 
you know, trying to propagate the idea that, you know, that UFOs were scout ships and there was motherships up there and that small objects seen were probes sent out by the scout ships to look at, you know, and observe people. I mean, you know, that is simplistic, too simplistic. But is it possible that we are being visited by flesh and blood aliens? Yes, of course it is. We should never rule that out. And, I, and the reason I say that is that as early as 1963, uh, Carl Sagan, the great cosmologist and astronomer, uh, who was a consultant and expert working with NASA for many years, um, he wrote a paper that concluded that we would have been visited many, well, he thousands of times by extraterrestrials in the course of the history of humanity. And he even suggested looking in places like the Mesopotamian ancient texts for, for possible evidence of this, you know, preempting people like, you know, Zachariah Sitchin by, by, by decades. And so if Carl Sagan comes to this type of conclusion, why should we, you know, ignore that? I mean, I clearly believe that, you know, Carl Sagan was, was a, a, you know, a, a, a genius. I mean, obviously he went on to, to write the book Contact, which became the blockbusting film, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and so, yeah, we should never ever dismiss the idea that some UFOs could be extraterrestrial hardware, uh, you know, visiting here and that, that they have been coming here for a very, very long period of time. But the question becomes, impact what impact have they had on the rise of human civilization i don't think it was as as much as people seem to imagine to me it's much more likely that quantum entanglement uh, is the method of giving us innovation and technology from a higher source and that higher source i believe is much more likely to be transdimensional in nature hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree based upon everything that you present in your book. It was a pleasure to read it. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you as well, because you cleared up some of the things that I maybe didn't get from the book. Um, not that you didn't write it out. It's just sometimes hearing somebody speak is easier for me. So I appreciate yep. you taking the time to uh, do that. And do you want to tell people what else you have working or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, OK, well, firstly, if you want to contact me or learn more about what I do, I have a website, which is andrewcollins.com, or just as it sounds. Obviously, I'm on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, but coming up in the UK, there is a massive event on June 24th to 26th called Awakening Expo, which has got Eric Von Daniken, um, Giorgio from Ancient Aliens and many other of my colleagues um, and it's a place called Blackpool in the north of England. Uh, I'll be there uh, obviously speaking. Um, I'm in America at Boulder, Colorado in September for a big Ancient Civilizations event with Gaia TV. Uh, watch out for news of that coming soon. Um, and beyond that, uh, my next book, which I shall be uh, releasing details of in July is uh, something I've been working on on ancient Egypt, which I won't spoil, but I've been, yeah, that's one of my main areas of, and that's, um, 
you know, a, a very sensible scholarly book, basically, uh, with, you know, whereas obviously I see the, the books that talk about UFOs and, you know, aliens and transdimensional intelligences as the other hat that I wear, basically. Uh, I think they're all related, but, you know, so you do have to separate them. Um, and beyond that, one of the greatest discoveries in archaeology, certainly in the last 10 years, is a place called Karahan Tepe, uh, which is the sister site of Gebekli Tepe in southeast Turkey, 11,000 years old. It changes everything that we know about the origins of civilization. I'm going to be writing extensively about that next. That's the that's a book. But so basically, I'm working on three different books on three different types of 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 things. So sometimes it can get a little bit confusing. But as I said, if anybody wants to write to me, got some ideas or thoughts or your own experiences, um, just come on to andrewcollins.com. There's an emailer on there. Just click that and just write to me. And I'll put that uh, link for your website in the show notes. And everybody yes. go out and get the book, The yeah, Origins called, of the Gods. Yeah, Origins of the Gods. Um, was it Kezem Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Please go out and get the book. It was awesome. And it was awesome chatting with you, Andrew. Thanks so much for your time. That's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, Ross. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed what you heard, you can show us some support by leaving a kind review wherever you're listening, sharing the show with your friends, and getting involved with our online community with the link in the show notes. We'll chat again soon. May good fortune be with you always. Peace.